Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace Series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. Welcome, everyone. My name is Laura Jean Cameron. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning. And along with Alison Moorhead, I co-direct the Fireplace series. The conversation today is about looking online. It is about how we look at ourselves, how we look at others, and how we perform ourselves for visual consumption online. Looking online is something many of us do a lot, many times a day. The exploration of the performance of self lends itself to interdisciplinarity, open as it is to a range of methodologies and interpretations. Today we are very fortunate to be joined by Laila Haiderali from the Queen's University's Departments of Gender Studies and History, and Martin Hand, also from Queen's University and working in the Department of Sociology. Their discussion will consider cultures of beauty and the performance of self online and offline, and in particular, how racial and gender identities are experienced, constructed, and deconstructed through various acts of looking in an attempt to make links between the pre-digital and digital ages. Laila Haiderali is a Queen's National Scholar in African-American Gender History and is cross-appointed to Gender Studies and History Departments at Queen's University. Her monograph, Brown Beauty, Race, Sex and Color from the Harlem Renaissance to World War II, traces the interwar development of a powerful discourse of brown beauty, foregrounding brownness of skin as the idealized complexion of respectable middle-class African-American women. Her next major work, The Model Project, develops ideas on brown beauty as a consumer-based ideal to study the post-war glamorization of the brown skin model. Martin Hand is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Queen's University and has written extensively about digital culture, visuality, and consumption. He teaches in the areas of sociological theory and consumer culture at the moment, and his recent research has focused on how smartphone and app use changes people's understanding, organization, and experience of time. His monographs are entitled Ubiquitous Photography and Making Digital Cultures, Access, Interactivity, and Authenticity. He co-edited the book Big Data, Qualitative Approaches to Digital Research, and he co-authored The Design of Everyday Life. Martin, Lila, a warm welcome to you both. Now to start things off, I'd like to reflect back a moment on our agonizing quest as event organizers to find the right image to promote this looking online conversation. As we tried to choose an appropriate one for your discussion, we were struck by the profusion of seemingly endless, yet oddly often similar images offered up by the stock photography sites. So as a geographer, I'd like to offer a where question regarding these images. Where do they come from? 
From your respective disciplines of sociology and history and gender studies, how would you each begin to approach such a question? Um, good morning. Thank you, Laura, so much for that nice welcome and Martin. Um, yeah, good to be here. Should we, would I just start with this question? Yes, uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I've got an initial answer if you, if you sure, want to do, do that. Um, okay, um, so uh, most stock photography of this kind is, as most people might, might know, is contained within vast commercial image banks. Uh, Getty owns most images. <laughs> going to see. Um, usually if you're trying to um, <clears throat> acquire images for books or something like that, you're likely to have to approach one of these stock photography companies and Getty has bought up most other ones and so on and that's where you're going to find these things. In terms of where they come from, you see this image here, it's hard to understand what its context is and you probably never will understand what its context is. And there's all sorts of places that they come from. A lot of uh, amateur photographers or s photographers or semi-professional photographers will make images in order to sell them to commercial image banks or have them adopted by them. And that's why you s one of the reasons why you see this kind of what's called uh, benign pleasantness to most of these images. When you see one of these images, you think, oh, that's a stock image. And there's a reason for that is that it's uncontroversial tends to be rather generic, stereotypical, and so on and so forth. Most images you see in print news or online news and so on tend to be these stock images. And the interesting thing for me about that is how they construct ideal images of what we expect to see then. Um, and the last point I just make about that is that, of course, now as we're seeing with things like Clearview and so on is the scraping of everybody else's ordinary images into image banks. And many of those images resemble these kinds of images. So you've got this, what Paul Frosch calls the wallpaper of consumer culture, it's just in the background, stock photography. And it's what you're looking at most of the time, but it's very difficult to interpret what it actually is. And I think that's part of the struggle you had with trying to find a good image was, well, how do we do that? Um, but and I, we, we, we thought when we were talking about this that this contrasted rather well with um, the kinds of images you've been looking at, which tend to not be like that, but in fact more like that. So I don't know if you want to um, start with thinking about this. Uh. Sure, thank you, Martin. That's great. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, I'm a historian, so this is a really big question for historians. It's sort of the primary question of sources. Where do things come from? Um, so historians traditionally, we go to the archives and we search out documents, text, images, um, sheet music. Um, you know, we go to the archives. So we look for things that have not been published have not been widely circulated, or if they have, the historian's task is always to reread and to question um, interpretations. So this image, and I should say a lot of, of my work really has been archival-based in terms of looking um, not just for images, but documents and a record of the past about beauty and modeling. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so this image itself, um, is a photographer. So this is Eve Arnold, a white 
American photographer, um, and she's photographing two, as the caption says, two young models um, checking their makeup in Harlem, 1950. It's a fashion show. Um, and I think the thing about these sorts of images, um, one, there's an intimacy, right? There's a, there's a clear intimacy of the photographer with the models. Um, and there's also, but there's also something very modern about the image, I think, um, of these two women back to back, sort of, you know, reflecting one another, but also reflecting outwards. Um, and so in terms of the image itself and where we find them, I think is really, really crucial. Again, these are the images that appear online and that you may find. Um, but for the historian, the big question is the context, where, when, who, audience, um, and to put that in that sort of context. So I think it's really interesting because these same Im images come through Getty images um, and are, you know, they are online, but again, the um, not always that historical sort of context around it. So I'm always really curious about how things are read, and I think you know the caption that historians will always give you um, to let you know about an image. Again, as Martin said, with that particular image we just looked at, we don't know the particular context. We never probably will, and maybe is that the sort of freeing aspect of digital photography, digital imaging, um, and those sort of questions about authenticity and value that you've talked about as well. So, um, you know, so anyway, that's a little bit about where right. Right. the question. So uh, in, in relation to this image, then, if we think about, uh, we, we talked a little bit about authenticity, yeah. and for you as a historian, um, how do you approach that question? Is it to do with the... Um, uh, the archival fund around the image, the you know the notations on it, or things like that. When you're doing that kind of work, is that how do you establish the context of this image? Like, what yeah. what is it about it that you? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think when you find things in the archives, it's sort of easy in some ways, easier. Um, you know, somebody has done that job of cataloging, archiving. But again, you have to ask the question. Um, who's done that work. Um, but sometimes, I mean, I, I'm an African-Americanist, I deal with black history, um, and so these photographs, a lot of photographs that have appeared either come from personal collections or, you know, sort of these, um, you know, uh, more public photographers. Um, so I think the questions we always ask of any text, um, you know, about authenticity and value, um, we ask of images as well. So who created it, why, where, and sometimes we don't know. Um, and again, the things with fashion and history we can glean from hairstyle, clothing, you know, the time period, roughly. Um, so historians' work is, does that sort of investigative work. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, what, if we uh, we had a, we have a series of images here. This is a little bit complicated. Yeah. So we're trying to do two things at once, which I, I, my age I find it difficult. Um, so the, this this image and this uh, I was reading your um, uh, account of how this um, uh, these kinds of images linked to uh, post-war consumer boom discourses largely white middle-class discourses of prosperity and uh, success and, and kind of self-improvement and those, those kinds of things. And we, we can sort of see that, that there. Could you 
So you tell us some more about that, because I thought that was really, really interesting. Oh, thank you, Martin. Yeah. Um, so this, I'll tell you a little bit of this. This is Ebony Magazine. Um, so Ebony Magazine was, is, um, was the first sort of photographic magazine of black life, African-American life. Comes out right after World War II. Um, and really, it is about the imagery. So, you know, Martin deals with a lot of digital images, social media. Um, but here we have the physical magazine. Um, the cover, though, really is very suggestive of um, a middle-class consumerist, consumerist ideal um, as the way forward for African-Americans. Um, so this is a moment of the United States post-war prosperity, um, African-Americans finding a way, the way um, historians talk about it is consumer citizenship. So in terms of you know, equal access to goods um, and that equal access to goods um, is an equal access to lifestyle and the display of lifestyle itself is a display of American citizenship. So um, a little bit about the image here. It's really interesting. It's a California dude ranch. Dude ranches uh, um, became at that point a sort of vacation leisure thing. Um, so you go off and you have your dude ranch experience during the summer. Um, she's obviously, you know, beautifully dressed, posed, the white horse, the picket fence. Um, but it is 1947. And this is a very... Um, the majority of African-Americans do not experience this prosperity and this middle-class lifestyle. Um, so in that sense, we could see almost, um, I guess, an idealization based on consumerism, prosperity, and beauty, which you know becomes this American ideal. And again, we see it today, right? We see it very much in the social media imaging. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, what I thought was interesting as well there is that uh, it sets a certain, uh, a series of expectations and conventions about, well, lots of things, clothing, activities, place, modification of leisure, um, uh, um, you know, idealizations of particular kinds of beauty and so on and so forth. And if you think about, um, if we think about uh, Instagram in particular, also Snapchat to some, de some degree, and you think about the highly cultivated, curated se sequences or flows, if you like, um, that you might be, that people might be um, scrolling through, whether they're really looking is another question we can think about, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's sort of a scrolling through these images and they're kind of, seems to me that the, the speed and pace of change there uh, is, is quite different. This is a you know, relatively fixed image in relation to some clearly established or identifiable discourses you can mm -hmm. trace as a historian, whereas now it seems like there's a multiplication and um, proliferation of ever-changing expectations about how one should pose, position, etc., etc., in social media. And, you know, there's some concern about about the spiraling nature of that, particularly in relation to things like um, uh, Fitspiration or Fitster uh, Instagram accounts where people's images of their, their own bodies are kind of relentlessly morphed and adjusted and cropped and so on to meet some kind of expectations that are largely unattainable. Maybe, uh, is, could we say that this person is, a, is an influencer? Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, so, 
I would say yes. I mean, in, in terms of this modern language of influence, so um, these models in my work, what I found out, um, so this is the late 1940s, 1950s, and black models, African-American models, um, really become these sort of, you know, um, influences for other black women in particular. Um, so the magazine itself conveys, um, as you said, you know, this editorial. So it's not just the images, it's the text, it's a layout, um, and it's also the physical, you know, we could talk about that, you know, the physicality of turning pages, of looking at images, of reading, as opposed to looking, right? And I think there's a, there's a big sort of thing there that we, we sort of want to talk about. Um, but going back to the influences, so absolutely, um, African-American, I mean, the big thing about these images um, in this period, it's, it's resisting, it's opposing, it's, it's trying to challenge stereotypes of black people. This is not the traditional image of a black woman um, that has been put forward by white society um, from you know, the colonial period onwards. This is not the typical image. So it's oppositional, it's alternative, it's resisting. In terms of the influence, um, these models actually come back and they, they, they go and tour, um, so they toured HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. Um, they talk to young women, college students, about how to dress. And not just how to dress, but how to use, how to be economical, how to sew your own clothes, how to be creative, how to put things together. And that's very much what the influencer does. And yeah. so it big, brings this big question, where does style come from? Who informs fashion? Um, and the big argument too, you know, comes from subculture, not from above. So right. maybe right. you could talk right. about the influences that way? Or? Well, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, well, I was thinking in relation to this that, uh, that, again, it's fairly coherent here, but would you say now that there were, um, how would that compare with, we talked about this particular image as, uh, of um, Kim Kardashian uh, as a key kind of influencer, uh, and the image was one that recreates a, an earlier image as I, as I understand it. Now, how would you think about that in terms of um, uh, uh, black influencer? Uh, are there being multiple forms of that or, or a really dominant one? Is that mostly linked to celebrity now or, or are there just myriad sort of micro versions of, of that that people try and find themselves in in some way or do you think that the, um, the celebrity influencer is more comparable to this or fundamentally different or is there a continuity there? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and I think, I mean, there are parallels and, they're, they're, and historians will always say they're continuities for their also, you know, um, breaks for the past. Um, so, okay, so the Kim Kardashian image, um, which we chose not to show, um, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but this was January 2014. Um, and the sort of tagline was, Kim Kardashian is going to break the internet, right? So it was this claim, she's going to break the internet. Um, the cover image um, is a recreation of an old um, photograph by a French, a white male French photographer, um, where he's recreating, um, it's an image of a black woman, she's nude, she has an urged back, and on her bum is a, is a champagne glass. And this is the image recreated by the same photographer, but of Kim Kardashian, who, she's an Armenian-American woman, but she has white privilege, um, seen as white. And the big critique there, um, two, well, lots of things. You know, one, she broke the internet, right? Kim Kardashian, half-dressed. Um, but two, I mean, the bigger problem there is 
the sort of playing with blackness and playing with historical, um, using those, those negative stereotypes of black women, racialized stereotypes of their bodies and also body parts, and sort of commodifying it through um, Kim Kardashian, who has used her bum, right? Um, which is phenotypically and stereotypically seen as um, a black, sort of bl black woman's body. Um, but she's used that, you know, for her own celebrityhood. Um, so I think lots and lots of problems with recreating these iconic images that don't, you know, sort of address the historical past. And then also use that sort of white privilege to step in and out of these beauty ideals that, of course, are, you know, appealing to, um, you know, heterosexual, heteronormative ideas of beauty. So um, I absolutely see it. Um, but the question you asked about celebrity, there are more positive things as well, of course. Um, we could think of Beyonce, uh, Nicki Minaj, maybe, you know, we could take that positive thing down a notch. Um, but in terms of black women, I think as celebrities, I think it's very important um, that they're the ones, and it's not, you know, Michelle Obama, it's the singers and artists that do have that spotlight. Although Michelle Obama is a really great example of sort of moving from the sexualized to the respectable, yeah. I think, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay, I, I um, th This idea that, uh, when we talk about images of self and uh, self-image and looking at ourselves and so on, one of the things we wanted to mention was that it's not just images of self, but there's nothing that escapes this now in terms of you know idealised images of how one should be behaving or what one should be eating and so on. And there's multiple levels to an image like this. This is a, a stock image that's been made a stock image out of a very ordinary image and now even previous Queen's Principal was quite interested in these kinds of images of, you know, here's my lunch and so on. And, and there's a kind of grain of authenticity to it, um, if you like. This is just me being an ordinary person. But of course, it, as soon as that happens, you, you, it escapes that uh, trope of authenticity and goes, goes somewhere else. Um, but body parts, um, adaptations to these um, expectations. If you, you know, if you observe people in cafes or restaurants now you'll often see images being made prior to eating and so on you know that that, that kind of idea same thing would apply to place-based um, images where uh, he, here I am um, authenticity of the background trying to find iconic shots um, very difficult to do because there is a photograph of everything now so how do you make one meaningful extremely difficult um, who wants to see another image of the Eiffel Tower? No one, I don't think. But, but I need to show that I was there, and how do I do that? Well, I have to do something different, can't do that anymore, that's, you know, and so on and so on and so on. So the, you know, the finding kind of authentic or meaningful ways to present the self is, is rather difficult uh, now, I think. But I think you know, younger people are already onto that. Hence the distinction now between Rinster Real Instagram and Finster, fake Instagram and so on. Uh, the fake one's supposed to be not fake, it's more authentic and the, the Rinster is the one that's highly curated and so on, as far as I understand. Um, and uh, quite difficult to keep up with this. Um, but the, the point is it's a very knowing sort of articulation of here I am do, doing this, I already know that you know that I'm not really doing, you know, and so on and so forth, like layers and layers of kind of uh, 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 issue, issues there. But for the researcher, point being, it makes it very difficult to understand them. 
because you have to understand what that context is and you can't just see it in the image in perhaps the way well, maybe you couldn't ever do that, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's difficult to establish the context. You've got to look for likes and comments and followers and uh, movements. The other thing is, um, back to that, about this kind of image, is when we ask where it is, in fact, it exists simultaneously across a myriad databases, uh, actual, someone's actual phone, but they don't own the image. Some, the, whoever, whichever social media platform they've posted it to owns the image temporarily then it moves somewhere else when we're talking about image flow it's quite different from that presumably and to, to, to say where this image is is an Im almost impossible question to answer it makes it very difficult to understand what its context is it will have multiple contexts of meaning for different mm. kinds of people I, I, I uh, I suppose, um, but it does link to these ideals again of consumerism and um, the good life and success and prosperity and so on and so forth. And uh, I, I wonder whether that creates a lot of a, a huge amount of pressure on people to adapt to and conform to images yeah. or live up to the images that they've made. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if that's. Yeah. No, it's something worth thinking about. No, so absolutely. Much. I mean, there's so much in, in what you're saying, and, and there's a lot to think about. Um, I think one of the, a few of the things that have sort of come up here um, for me is the sort of the documenting, right? So documenting the self, um, documenting the experience. Um, it's like if that photo ex didn't exist, that person didn't have that meal, you know? So that right. sort of issue of documenting sort of reality or documenting experience. Um, and I guess some things I want to think about there perhaps um, about this documenting the self and this sort of social media imagery. Um, I guess in terms of who's doing it, who's seeing it, whose life is this, and how global is it? So as much as we have this proliferation of images of you know great food and fancy restaurants and um, you know even like how is that image taken? Like I'm just curious. Like who's who's where's the camera? Um, so who's the viewer? Who's being seen? Yeah. And I guess you know I mean from your work, Martin, um, would you say that these images are dominant? Like they're, they're coming out of the West? predominantly? Are they being viewed globally? Like this, you know, this is a, I don't know, it's pizza or pasta or something. Um, it's but, hard to tell, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but is it something like, you know, um, somebody in India would be like, you know, this is just an average meal. Um, I guess that experience of, I wouldn't say tourism through that way, mm -hmm. but I guess I'm curious about, you know, who's making the images and who's seeing it and how global that flow Really yeah, well, that's a difficult question. I think there's lots of answers to it, actually. What, uh, most straightforwardly is, is largely dependent on smartphone use. Yeah. It, you know, most images are made through smartphones, and so you know, who, who has the most smartphones is well known to be you know, largely Western consumers. A high, you know, 95% of people in Canada have a smartphone, something like that. Yeah. Um, so that tells you something. Um, about the dominance of those images and the kinds of images that are uh, adopted by stock photography agencies, which will take that generic form, even if they are images of other places, they tend to have that well-known tourist gaze element. Uh, so there'll be stereotypical generic depictions of the other in all its forms. Um, another thing to say about that, though, is that when, when we, an image like this, when 
uh, it would be wrong to think of it as global. It's, it's always potentially global, but really people look at um, images of themselves and others that are, they, they, they know most of these people. It's a very small, outside of the, of the, of the um, micro-celebrity or the uh, uh, influencer, which might, may have thousands and thousands of views, for the majority of you know, ordinary people, um, it's friends and relations. And it's a very small circuit. And you're sure it's owned by the social media company and is potentially scrapable and global in that sense. But in terms of the context of meaning or uh, visual communication, it tends to be local, I think. Uh, very much. And many of these images simply wouldn't mean anything to anybody else in any sort of uh, serious way. I mean, a lot of these are to do with look at us doing this together. It's much more collective than it might first appear, I think. Even the selfie is, tends to be commented on by friends and relations and you know, how, how great someone looks and it's a kind of you know, form of validation or something like that. And those are the, I mean, I, I guess I would say that as a sociologist, it's about you know, collective behavior and uh, meaning making, sense making between uh, individuals who know each other. But there's always the possibility that they'll be seen by unknown others and it creates a certain amount of anxiety and, um, and uncertainty and unpredictability. But to describe that as global, yeah. you know, it's a tricky concept. I understand, yeah. I think that's really cool. I think that's really actually sort of affirming in some ways of social media. Um, you know, because I could think of Facebook like a long time ago as being very much centred towards your community and friends, your sharing, um, and how Instagram has really sort of opened that up a little bit, I guess, in that sense. Um, I guess, Martin, the other thing I just want to ask you about a little bit, because you bring up the thing of the smartphone, right? And mm -hmm. that everybody now is a photographer, everybody now is you know, a very good photographer, depending on what type of phone you have. Um, and I guess, you know, for me as a historian, the thing with, that I was talking about fashion and beauty and the democratization, right? Of goods, democratization of fashion, of beauty, do we see this? Do you see social sort of media imagery and imaging and photography as a democratization of image making? And are there any potential dangers or pitfalls there? Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yes, in the mm -hmm. sense of the since the you know since the post-war consumer boom that we talked about earlier. Of course, the changes in uh, camera technology and and particularly now, as you say, the the camera is just an element in other things. It's not really a camera as such, it's just an element in this other device, which is, you know, the interesting thing about the smartphone there is that most people carry it with them at all times. It's the most intimate of objects um, and lends itself to just continually, or habitual photography maybe, where you're constantly taking images of, every, of everything. Democratizing in that sense, like it's available to far more people than that it was in, and, and also uh, it's a process that can be controlled by that person themselves. You don't have to, um, oh, we talked about how, you know, with, it, with your film, if you were an amateur, you'd take your film to the, the chemist and they would kind of admonish you for not being very good at this and say, you know, the light on this is terrible and put stickers on photos and <laughs> things like that. You know, there was a kind of, uh, you know, um, you, you realise just how bad you were at this, whereas now it's, you're in control of the whole process of photography as, it, as it's called. So there's something democratising about, about that. When you say about the, the sort of risks of that or something like that, do you, do you mean... Um, uh, 
we don't know what to believe in terms of what we're seeing or something like that, or, or I don't know what to Well, do. I guess two things I'm thinking of. One is that everything is open for photography. Right. That you could be sitting on a subway and you know, somebody's across from you and they're open, an open subject sure. for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's sort of one thing I guess I was thinking about, maybe um, you know, the, the dangers of sort of yeah. policing, sure. social sure. policing and public shaming. Right. Um, and then I guess the other part of the democratization um, that I would just worry about is particularly in social media, um, that it, it sort of, you know, as much as there's this flow, there's also this editorializing and this sort of storytelling yeah. that, you know, potentially could end up being the truth or fake news. Um, right. So I guess okay. those sort yeah. of, you know, yeah. sticky issues. Yeah, but no, absolutely. Okay, I'll, I'll try and talk about both <laughs> of them. Uh, the first one, interesting, yeah, uh, there was a, a, a good piece. Um, a few years ago about how many photos of the are you in the world and how you couldn't possibly know unless you were named you know in them and which you're often not and precisely for that reason uh, and yeah um, lots of again younger people will talk now about they just expect to be filmed and photographed all the time not by you know the state or something although that's of course occurring as well um, and corporations of one kind or another but just by each other just expect and as soon as you see someone pull out their uh, smartphone you can see people adopt poses like with unthinking it's a kind of uh, embodied reflex to the idea that of course there will be images of me and it's seen as a commonplace for me that's horrific but for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but for, for, but for most people it's maybe not now I just think of nothing 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 of it the shaming things are a good example and this is one of the most um, uh, unintended and uh, um, not great uh, aspects of uh, social media for, for lots of reasons. One is the, the immediacy of the capture and the lack of thinking about the context, the meaning, and there might be alternative meanings and context. We've seen myriad examples of, of the sort of chaos that can cause. There's some interesting examples recently of people, there's a great uh, article about people um, shaming their neighbours for using too much water on their lawns and posting this to a neighbourhood forum and say, look at Mrs Jones down the road, she's, you know, curating her grass again. Public shame, you know, sort of, for, for, again, for good reasons. <laughs> but is that, you know, is that a reasonable way to behave and so on? Um, and then uh, the second thing was to do with the truth and the curation. So, okay, so back, back to the uh, cultivation idea that you've talked about uh, in terms of um, cultivating an image of the self for particular purposes. It's always been the case, um, but now it uh, seems to me that when people talk about their uh, social media imagery, particularly their selfies, um, everybody knows they're curated to a high level. So there's a new kind of reading of authenticity there among people with each other. So people will say, you know, that um, that particular selfie was curated a little bit too far. There are new rules. Um, it's expected that there's curation and adjustment and cropping and filters and, you know, these kind of slimming filters and things like that. Everybody expects to see that. So then there are new rules of authenticity about how far, how far should you go and so on and so forth. So there's sort of nothing new about it, but it's certainly intensified, I think, I think now. And there's new rules to that game, but those rules are established in again, local groups, I think, among friends or, yeah. and so on and so forth. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think that's the way yeah. I think about it. I think that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, I think the technology aspect is like so key because um, again, in Merton's work, he talks about um, you know again that sort of you know the, the the image is not. I really like this that the image is. Um, like for me, um, as a historian, the image is fixed. That that was taken in 1950, and there it is. Um, and you know, the sort of argument you bring up is that these digital images are always like almost in flux. They're almost always being remade. They don't really exist as a fixed, um, permanent image. And I guess you know those sort of questions about. Um, I was thinking of the, the, the Northern Lights and, and in particular the, the digital imagery around that and so much of that imagery has been digitized and touched up. Um, and so I guess that issue of you know, the, the line between earth, representation, truth and journalistic photography. And I think, you know, I think what social media is doing, I think is really interesting because it's sort of challenging all those yeah. boundaries at the same time. Um, would you say, would you say this, that um, it's establishing new sort of um, parameters of judging authenticity, value, um, immediacy. I, I think so. I think all of that. I tend to think of uh, you know the, the, this social media, uh, well, uh, uh, visual culture more generally, as everything that was, that was there before is still there, but now there's you know, there still are printed images and people still choose to do things like that. Um, we don't deconstruct every image we receive. If a friend of yours posts something, you don't immediately deconstruct it and say, well, I'm not sure. You, know, you, you take things to be, to have a certain kind of indexicality or something. Otherwise, you'd be very difficult to communicate with each other. And then you might look at another thing like a one of these kinds of Fitzpiration characters who shows you a before and after image of a particular workout routine, you're likely to deconstruct that and not believe it, and probably rightly so. So there's a new kind of visual literacy, perhaps, that, that comes in in certain circumstances. And the ability to think about those different contexts are, I think, what I would say would be novel about that, because you're faced with it all the time in ways that you weren't before. Um, if you think about how people are just looking all the time at something. Now, whether they're seeing is another <laughs> question that we've thought about a little bit, but um, we, in, in relation to this, right, so this is, this is a, a, you know, an a, a Instagram influencer, but the interesting thing about this person is that they don't exist. This is an AI creation that isn't a person. Um, and you can see this person, this person inserted in this other image. Um, but look at the look at the um, description there, hungover but making fun. as if this was a very ordinary person having their breakfast, but they're not real. They're it's from an AI lab. Um, there's more and more of this kind of thing. It's not just that someone's cropped this or changed it in some way, but this is someone who doesn't even exist. Now, of course, the followers here know that. You know, it's not that they're not in, they're not deluded by by this, but nonetheless, it conjures up more idealised ideas about you know, what you should be doing, how you should look, and so on and so forth. And it's just, we don't know yet, you know, whether this is influential or really shapes people's beliefs or anything like that. It's, a, it's an open question, this kind of machine vision of this kind. Uh, this is really new, I'm not, not really sure. But again, I think that people adapt to this, you know, in, ver in various ways and try and, but they have to develop ways of reading this and thinking about it.
Um, I, th I think. Um, but I don't know whether, um, nonetheless, there were these iconic images still that people... You mentioned Beyoncé, for example. I mean, we don't disbelieve what she's portraying, or particularly. She, I, I think people's interpretations of a, of a figure of that kind, of great influence and positivity, that they, they would read that fairly straightforwardly. I don't know, but I don't know whether that's true. No, I think that is true, and I think these are such interesting images, um, especially this, you know, as you said, this is an AI person, um, but she has a life, obviously, and, and people are following her life, um, and there she's out, you know, skateboarding and, and dressing, so um, I think what I'm seeing here is a sort of representation of, you know, what historians would call ordinary or everyday people, mm -hmm. but obviously being, you know, she's not a person, um, and comparison with, with Beyonce, for example, is this huge celebrity, um, where I think, you know, people would see an image and understood, understand it's a professional image, she's, you know, professionally dressed, there's a performant, performative element to it, um, whereas I think we look at this and we think, oh, well, somebody's just having breakfast and they're hungover. Um, and that could be me, potentially. Right. Whereas I think with the, with the thing with Beyonce, it's like, okay, well, she's, she's there and she's fantastic and we could aspire to that, but we'll probably never all be on the stage looking like that, but we could probably be that. So I think the influence, the celebrity thing um, is quite an interesting, I wouldn't say divide, because I think at, at some points they come together. Um, but yeah. I'm seeing it here as a, as a story. As, this could be your friend that you're following, right? right. But right. she doesn't exist, so. Yes, no, I see what you mean. And there's a, there's a, a, a thing now with um, particular kinds of, who've become quite well-known, uh, YouTube influence in, in particular, to move to sort of moving images, um, whose you know, authenticity has been questioned. So now the majority of images they post are them just eating pizza which of course they never eat. Um, and everybody knows that. These are usually models of one kind or another, back to your initial image. But there's this effort to try and conjure a, an image of you, you, I'm just like you. And you see this more and more now in social media where images are taken in sort of um, intimate domestic surroundings to say, it's just me talking to you as a friend, but really this person is a a rather iconic figure and I just, I, it says to me that this I, looking for authenticity has become more and more important in the face of this kind of world of swirling images that are hard to make sense of uh, in, some, in some way. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's a really nice connection between, um, just I think of Meghan Merkel and Harry and yeah. this sort of paparazzi, um, you know, and those images back in the day of somebody coming out of a grocery store with a bag, um, sort of doing everyday life, and how now, you know, it's so deliberately um, sort of constructed to show everyday life and everyday performance. So, um, yeah, great, thank you. Thank you, Lila. <laughs> thank you, Martin. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm grateful for knowing that I may see a little bit better online, not just look online, but I may see things a little bit better. At this time, I'd like to invite people, friends, colleagues gathered here to come up and ask questions of, of you two. Hi, it, it's Sandra. And um, I was quite fascinated by your most recent point about this person who doesn't exist 
and uh, being built by AI, and I was thinking, well, what's feeding the AI? So what is feeding the AI to create this person and whatever this person is doing every day? I don't actually know the answer to that question in this case, but generally what I've seen some similar, um, uh, showed some students some um, uh, AI, uh, machine learning, machine learning uh, workings, taking um, uh, stock photography of celebrities and then m meshing them together and taking their generic features and producing new images. And the interesting thing about those is people think that they can recognize them because they're so similar to actual celebrities that you feel like, oh, that's so-and-so, but it isn't. And it's actually, so it's, it's scraping some of that stock photography or imagery to produce ideal typical versions of persons. Yeah, so in that ideal typical, it's kind of, well, it's reflecting back. Yeah in many ways in a, what seems like a very interesting way to follow what this person is, is typifying something yeah. built from a whole yeah. lot of yeah. other, which is just a fascinating Which thing. have already been, and is finding this out in uh, you know, facial recognition issues to do with how you know, largely the, the images that have been used are mostly of white people, mostly male, um, and that they therefore construct kind of, well, exactly the constructions you would expect and don't recognise other faces. I mean, quite, quite an extraordinary thing. Certain, certain faces are not recognised by those systems because they, they're the ones that haven't been scraped and you can entirely predictable what you'd expect to see there, yeah. Uh, hi, my name's Claudia. Um, so somewhat building on what Sandra just asked is I was wondering how the internet looks back at you. So we've been speaking about how we look at images online, uh, but I grew up in a time when I wasn't online and it wasn't looking at me. And increasingly, we're defined by algorithms that somehow define us um, in terms of what we see. So could you possibly speak a bit about how the internet looks back at us? Thanks. Okay. I think I'll... Maybe ask the sociologist to <laughs> um, <laughs> tackle that one first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, it uh, depends what you uh, mean by that. I mean, but, but, um, if you, partly what, what you're seeing is, of course, as you say, <laughs> algorithmically um, uh, decided upon in the sense that uh, pretty much every transaction you make of, uh, in a broad sense is um, uh, 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 stored, calibrated, reused in order to send you, mostly in terms of advertising and marketing and so on. You're going to see certain kinds of images rather than others in relation to your preferences that have been stored in databases and so on and so forth. That, that kind of process. So, um, so for example, particularly now if you're, uh, one of the th interesting things in Instagram is, is the meshing of, um, say, particular influencers with the products they're advertising, and now it's, there's a seamless integration of the of the product with the person. So you're likely then to see in other platforms that product or something related to that appearing in your feed. So there's that kind of. So the way you see the world has already been, you know, uh, uh, calibrated uh, for certain. Um, and then of course you've got your own. Um, uh, visual feed of your self, which you would imagine to be entirely under your control, but often 
platforms will do something surprising, like here's a timeline of your memories, and um, right, uh, it's, it's, it's a surprise that you that that that's the it produces a narrative which isn't necessarily your narrative or certainly not what you thought was significant or something and this leads people to engage in vast and you know sort of uh, furious bouts of editing i don't want that to be and life course moments are important here particularly perhaps leaving university trying to get a job a certain amount of editing occurs on your visual history for obvious reasons and so on and you see these kind of shifts in the way that people portray themselves but it's 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 having to negotiate that in relation to the mechanics which are largely invisible to you and you don't necessarily if, that, if that's what you were referring to yeah hi my name is Dorit Naaman um, I have a follow-up question about about this image and the influencers and I think I wrote I don't know which one of you said about kind of influencers being a subculture from below but what we see here is that uh, obviously somebody spent money on create and, and feeding it regularly right so um, is that really that's no longer from below so I guess I have two questions one is uh, it seems to me pretty similar to the Ebony m model that we saw, who is then sent to the colleges to kind of create create the subculture, which is not really a subculture because it comes from above, so it creates a market. And this creates also whoever, whether it's a fashion industry or a PR company for somebody that uh, creates that fake uh, Instagram influencer, um, so I, I think that I'm kind of curious a little bit more about the capitalist maybe similarities rather than differences between mm -hmm. print journalism and social media and, and the self because it seems there's more, uh, more similar than different. And then I guess I don't, because I'm not a sociologist, I'm also curious about the, the real influencers, <laughs> the actual flesh and blood, real, whatever, they perform themselves too, right? We know that. Um, when, what is the moment when they're picked up by the fashion industry and, or is it, I'm sure some sociologists have been kind of tracking that because that is also very telling about what, what they're looking for, how a self perform themselves when they have 500 to get to 2,000, to get 5,000, to get to the, to be noticed or, or something, I don't know, you know, so, yeah. Okay, um, maybe I'll just address the historical part um, and then you can sort of take up a little bit more. Um, Dory, thank you so much for your question. And I think um, capitalism is a really big part of the story I'm telling, um, and in particular how African-Americans at this particular juncture are sort of using this sort of capitalist ethos and practice to sort of affirm themselves as citizens. Um, but it's a great point. Um, so in this particular moment, we see, um, I mean, the question about where does fashion style come from? Um, one argument has been, you know, it comes from various places, but it also comes from, from the street, from subculture. And African-Americans are very much, um, as much as he's a middle-class, um, you know, accomplished people, um, the majority of African Americans really exist on the periphery and on the margins of white um, American society in the 40s and 50s. Um, so certainly they are taking, um, you know, fashion, um, 
you know, within the sort of mainstream fashion and taking it to the colleges. But I think they are teaching something different. Um, you know, use what you have, recycle. I mean, the things that we, we adopt now, those practices we adopt now. And the nice sort of question Merton and I were talking about um, a little bit earlier is the alternative to this, the oppositional. This is a particular moment. Um, by the late 1960s, 1970s, black is beautiful. It's an oppositional image, it's resistant, it's, it's really rejecting um, white dominant norms, mainstream trends, and capitalism itself. So it's coming. But the moment I'm looking at is, is this moment of, of access, of trying to access these paths. So this certainly is one set of imagery, but it doesn't mean that those more oppositional ones didn't exist um, in terms of influencing broader trends. So thank you. And yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, a few, few things to say. Uh, so uh, uh, um, there's more opportunities now for co-option of street. Uh, and of course that happens at a quicker pace and can be done in a way further back down the chain by scraping some of that imagery, transforming it into um, particular kinds of style which are then sold back and so on and so forth. So that well-known process of you know, encoding, decoding and so on happens at a certain kind of pace. I, I, would, I would think that was right. In contrast to that though, you know, there's a lots of um, interesting work on how uh, this democratisation of image making has really allowed various kinds of marginal uh, identities and expressions to be to flourish uh, visually um, on, on online as 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 quite resistant. So the broader thing might be that um, uh, the very idea of uh, performing the self in relation to certain kinds of um, uh, idealized expectations the very idea of that is you know some people might think of that as a neoliberal type notion of individuality something something of that kind uh, the only thing I'd say about it, fine but um, in 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 particular kinds of context people tend to do this in a, a not particularly individual way it appears to be like that you know the, the sort of popular idea that young people are narcissistic now it's a journalistic trope. It's not particularly insightful. It looks like that if you just take a glance. But if you look a bit more carefully, you find that people are trying to understand each other slightly more collectively. But the self-improvement and the incessant search for whether it be authentic it is for sure in that, in that, in that frame, I think, here. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, I wanted to cycle a little bit back to this idea of the global. Um, and I don't actually have any of these numbers in front of me, so this is somewhat um, a comment from my brain. Uh, but my understanding is that even though something like Facebook might be the most globally dominant form of social media, that most of the top 10 would be coming from China. Um, and the highest saturation of social media and internet technology uses in Korea. Yeah. And then even markets like India, where maybe it's not at the level of smartphone usage yet, mobile technology use is more widespread than public sanitation. I mean, and so I think a little bit about kind of those things, and I wanted to maybe shift that into a question, which is, um, I was thinking about Minha Pham's book, Asians Wear Clothes on the Internet, which is one of my favorite titles. Um, and 
part of what her argument is, is that people like, maybe I'll pick the most famous, like Brian Boy, were able to use sort of, you know, blogging and fashion blogging as a way to break up the current fashion industry, like getting front row seats on Fashion Week, um, which is something unheard of in the history of the fashion sort of industry. And so I'm wondering, like, what are the sort of the limitations and tensions you see between breaking up this, these historical forms of beauty in the sort of digital age? Sorry. Oh, and I'm Alina. Do you want to... Oh, I can answer this. Uh, the first little bit of that about the, the global questions is a good one. Um, that, uh, uh, as with other kinds of um, technologies uh, adopted in different um, social, cultural contexts, geographic contexts, uh, one of the uh, mistakes that we often make is to assume that their usage and use patterns and meanings will be the same, and they're just not. Um, uh, for example, you know, uh, uh, cell phone use in um, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, is, is completely different from elsewhere and so on and so forth. You know, technology is shaped by the context as much as it is by corporations or any, anything of, 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 that, of that kind. So on the one hand, we might see, you know, much higher saturation of um, uh, particular social media platforms. We just don't see here, here. Um, and smartphone use might be more dominant somewhere else, but the uses of it are not necessarily going to be the same at all. I'm going to only make, really make sense in, a, in a, a relatively local setting, which just the first part of your question about that. Hence my reluctance to think about the term global so much is really because of that. Even for, you know, there's some good sort of anthropological work on a um, series of 10 books by uh, Daniel Miller and colleagues from University College London who've done this kind of five-year ethnography of uh, social media use and smartphone use across every continent. And so these books called Why We Post, and it's just radically different in different places as to what the, even the purpose and meaning of posting images is. It always in relation to very local, class, gendered contexts if you see what I mean. So resist that term global, I, I would, but. Yeah. Oh, no, thanks for your question. I'm not sure if I have a really a great answer to it, um, but I'll just, I'll come back to sort of Ebony. And I think it's a really nice example. I mean, it's an American publication meant for African-Americans, but it, it really travels um, to, you know, parts of the African continent, to the Caribbean. Um, so it begins to stand in for blackness. Um, you know, beyond the United States. Um, I think the point you raised, though, about, you know, the fashion world in particular, and I think that's where we really see, um, you know, people who have been considered marginalised or who are marginalised really challenging those sort of boundaries and coming back to subculture that way. Um, so I'm not really sure. I can't really speak too much about social media in that respect. But I think you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, looking outside of this Western world um, for these, these, these trends and influences that are coming back to us. So they're not mediated through the West. They're actually coming from, um, you know, much more um, diffuse spaces, I guess, and people. Um, so that's, yeah, the way I could see it. But thank you for your question. Hello, um, my name's Hannah Hunter. Um, forgive me as I try and articulate this. Um, but I'm just thinking about um, maybe the more colloquial critiques um, that a lot of people have against the actions of social media and how it often seems to pivot around um, young women and teenage girls' use of social media. 
Um, and sort of how that's tied up in the sort of more ubiquitous like trivialization um, of the interests and actions of, of teenage girls um, and sort of this obsessive separation that a lot of people have with, oh, I use social media, but I'm not like other girls. I'm not like these selfies and filters and, and things like that. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, you'll probably have more to say, but... Um Kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. sure. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's a great about, question. Um, yeah. uh, well, on the one, when everything's expected to be seen and visualised all the time, I mean, it's part of part of a broader a broader phenomenon of the of the the quotidian or the the everyday or the banal becoming a legitimate topic of inquiry for 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 everybody, but also for. For, for scholars, and of course, some people see things like that as trivia. So they would see that as, you know, what's what could you say about that? It's just trivia or something of that kind. Um, the gendered uh, uh, account of that there is is interesting because it, of course, has a, a longer-standing notion of, um, you know, uh, unimportant work or uh, trivia associated with. Uh, young women, gossip, you know, so, so on and so forth, these kinds of uh, pejorative ideas. And now you, you, you see that intensified in that way. And I think it links to what I was saying before about this idea that um, people must be just self-concerned, uh, that, that, that kind of idea, which is an odd way to think about it, because you could equally think, oh, people are faced with a barrage of expectations that they um, are not quite sure how to negotiate, you know, and um, shouldn't we be sort of concerned about about that as a rather oppressive sort of world or something? I, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's a lot there. Um, but I think it, it's a great question because um, it's, it's you know so much of sort of youth culture in particular, girls, um, girlhood, um, youth is being sort of formulated and, and forged online. And I think you know from what you're suggesting, um, young girls and girls and young women, I guess, are finding an avenue, a space, um, you know, particularly on YouTube. And I'm thinking of those makeup tutorials in particular um, that you know girls as young as nine, eleven in their bedroom can give you these wonderful tutorials on how to use makeup, how to apply makeup. Um, and that sort of sense of, you know, what we were talking about, always moving towards um, perfection, trying to, um, you know, improve oneself. And that sort of tutelage, um, speaking to another young girl, I think, you know, can be quite empowering. Um, at the same time, you know, Martin, in your work, you talk about selfies and the sort of view of the selfie as a feminine or feminized sort of, you know, way of taking, of image making. And I think that sense that YouTube and those sorts of social media for young girls is also that sort of infantilizing feminist, feminized um, way of talking that only women can talk. And I think, you know, it is, it's just inherently dangerous for young girls that that's the only sort of avenue. But I would assume it's not. I'm, I'm assuming um, there are other YouTube videos um, and not just about makeup. But I mean, those are the ones, I guess, because of my field too, I'm very, you know, I, I see, I see quite a lot. And I see my young niece, you know, looking at them. So um, thank you. I do, just, uh, can I just add to that a little Go bit, ahead. just because I, I, I didn't respond to something um, Dorit asked actually about um, at what point do you get you know, adopted, but it relates to what you're saying about the sort of makeup tutorials and things like things like that. So a couple of things. One is, I'm not sure the exact number of followers 
is you need to then be spotted as it were but doing this kind of tutorial work is what's been described as a form of hope labor uh, in the hope that maybe you'll get taken up but having said that a lot of companies now in fact precisely want the people with the few followers because that gives them authenticity i.e this is just an ordinary girl rather than this is someone trying too hard so that's another layer of kind of difficult interpretation to be done if you know what i mean yeah Hello, I'm Stephanie Dickey. I'm an art historian, and I'm currently teaching a class on portraiture in which we have been addressing many of these issues. So this is fascinating, and I wish I could ask you 10 questions, but I don't want to take up everybody's time. Um, authenticity is a really interesting topic that you've brought up. I could give you examples of portraits going back to ancient Greece or Egypt in which authenticity is in question, right? People have always wanted to make themselves look better than they really are. Um, archiving of these images, you mentioned the archive earlier as an important resource for historians. So when these images are constantly in flux, where are we gonna land in terms of an archive of images that are important or worth remembering 10 or a thousand years from now? Michelangelo made a portrait in what, which didn't look like the person he represented, and when he was challenged about that, he said, in a thousand years, nobody will remember what he looked like anyway. <laughs> so, so that brings up, actually, the third point I wanted to ask about, which is agency. In that case, the artist has the agency to make that person look the way the artist thinks he ought to look, not the way he necessarily does look. And you've talked about democratization and one might think that the availability of all of this instant imagery shifts the agency to the person who's making the image of him or herself. Your ebony model, for example, we've talked a lot in my class about the fact that there's a huge difference between being a hired model who's doing what the photographer tells you to do and being the person who hired that photographer to make you look the way you're paying him or her to do. So the agency is with the commissioner of the image, not necessarily the person in it. And that's been true for the whole history of portraiture, basically. So I would love for you to talk more about this issue of agency and whether you think there really is more agency now for the person who's making the image of themselves, or are they still at the mercy of larger forces? Thank you. Okay. Wow, great questions. Yeah, <laughs> great, yeah, great, yeah. great questions. Um, I'll address the, um, the question about archives and, and documentation and, because that's, it's a key question for me. And I have the same puzzle. Um, I do wonder, you know, because as we've started talking, um, and I do wonder about, you know, what set of images, what set of text, I mean, how are we curating this in the future? In 50 years from now, what would the historian have to look at? Where would it be found? Um, and, you know, Martin, you always sort of point about some of these images, you know, you see them today, but they may never exist tomorrow. 
um, and you know that they don't always they're not permanent they're not fixed I think it's a really important point so I'm not sure if I have an answer to that question in what we do in the future or even now what do we look at um, the question about agency is a huge one for me it's a really really big one um, I look at you know historically I look at these models as not just um, you know, posing as not just um, taking up the photographer's um, guidance, and certainly they're doing that. Um, but a lot of these African-American women are actually, um, they were actually quite big in their communities, and, and they were quite, you know, not known people, but, you know, they had some established um, place. And I think it was a little bit more of a negotiation, as much as they're learning, right? Because they, they want to fit into this fashion industry world. Um, what I do like about the agency, in particular black women, um, in this period and beyond, um, is that it does seem to be a conversation between stylist, photographer, and model. And maybe I'm inflating that a bit much, but in this particular period, it does seem like that. And I did wonder about agency as well. Um, in particular, you know, who's taking the image, um, who, as, as I asked, who's posing. Um, but yeah, the question of agency is a really, really big one, I think, in digital image, imagery. And again, the fact of authorship and you know, where it comes from, go, coming back to Laura's question, the questions that historians, I mean, we puzzle over, right? So, yeah, so I'll start with the, the archive thing. So I think it, it, um, uh, partly uh, the, the issue now is that people have to resolve it individually in ways they perhaps didn't have to before. So, you know, uh, a typical, um, you know, I keep referring to these young people, a young person. Uh, I mean, someone probably in their 20s, something like that, might have 20 to 30,000 images on their phone, typically. And um, they're never going to look at them. Uh, but at some point, they're going to make probably decisions about um, enabling some kind of fixity to occur. Um, and it's a little bit different from the you know, the family album, which tended to be, you know, mother-controlled, usually, ideal, idealised de depictions of happiness and so on and so forth that nobody accepted, but nonetheless, uh, there was a narrative there and so on. Whereas now you're faced with something a little bit more dynamic, um, I think. It's more behoven on an individual to deal with um, what will be remembered by them. Having said that, given that they've dispersed all their images in other complex infrastructures, they're going to be remembered in ways that are completely out of their control, or not remembered, or forgotten, you know, whatever. Decay, digital decay, so on and so forth. You know, like uh, legitimate archives are struggling with this problem because, firstly, there's no kind of notation on images. They can't you know, there's no kind of description on the back. This is Uncle George, and you know, there's none of that. So they don't know what to do with them. And then there's just too many. So you're in the, of course, they've always had to select what counts as the history of the nation or whatever it might be. And now it's just increasingly more difficult to do, I think. But it's also something faced by an individual person. How am I going to, what are, what are keepsakes going to be like? What's it, you know, that, that, that kind of issue. But people do still, of course, frame images, you know, if, and print them and, you know, keep them in various ways. And the process of selection is just more complicated. So that's, that's one thing, I think. The agency thing, I would always say there's larger structural forces at work. Uh, <laughs> but now I think I'd say, well, the infrastructures in which this is situated are vastly more complex than they once were. And it's the idea that, okay, at the point of the making of the image, 
you might say there's a moment of agency there, but it's a thoroughly technical process. It couldn't be done without it. The, the self is an interesting case because it's not, in some ways, like a portrait because self-portrait because it's an image of of you taking the image. Not it's not an image of you. It's an image of the taking of the image, which is a little bit, little bit different. Um, and it feels like you're absolutely in con control of that. But of course, the very idea of it has been already manufactured, and so on and so forth. So you've got the familiar problem of, like with you know, portraiture, people being strapped into chairs and people then saying Victorians looked rather stiff, but not surprisingly because they were kind of <laughs> bolted. And, you know, it's always this kind of artifactual, you know, not really to do with the person so much. Can I, can I add something? Do I have, to, do I have time, Laura? Yeah. Um, just in response to your question, again, um, about agency, and again, you know, because I'm coming from the historical point of view, um, a great example is Ebony. So Ebony magazine, published by John H. Johnson, Johnson Publication. Um, when John H. Johnson, he died probably about maybe less than a decade ago. Um, and when I started doing this work, basically Ebony had a lockdown on all their images. They would never allow their images to be reproduced in journals, academic books, shown at conferences. Um, so, you know, that was a really big deal. And he maintained that, John H. Johnson maintained that until his death. So when he died, um, the whole company, Ebony, Jet, all these different magazines, um, all of these images, hundreds and thousands of images, just ended up, um, nobody knew what to do with them. They went up for public auction. Um, so he had this lockdown on sort of black life, including images by Gordon Perks, a very famous civil rights photographer. Um, so image, images of lockdown. Just last year, they went up for public auction. Um, the Smithsonian, the African-American Museum, that's now opened up after 35 years of effort in Washington, D.C., has acquired them. Um, and this summer is going to be my first attempt to go and look at them and probably be amongst the first people to look at. There's a ton of images. But the fact that, you know, because I was saying about the digital, well, here's a really good example of the traditional being um, locked down um, in that sense of, you know, who has access. So the point about, you know, the photographer and the agency as a person behind the camera, but then distribution, um, who sees it, is also really key. So it's a great question. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Lila Hyderali and Martin Hand for a wonderful conversation. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marianne Mozedich. Thank you for listening, and please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series. <laughs>